the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty
chorus again, oh love. Oh love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels' song. Father, what a glorious way to begin our time in worship, reflecting upon, meditating upon your love for us that we know supremely in your Son, Jesus Christ. Indeed, as we sang, the erring child you have reconciled by your love in Jesus Christ, redeeming grace to Adam's race. And Father, that's why we can say with the Apostle John, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we might be called the children of God, adopted heirs, joint heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our eternal future, but it's also our present. And Father, we thank you as John says that when the Lord Jesus appears, We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. And Lord, that passage reflects on seeing, seeing Christ as he is. But Lord, we can see him now by the spirit, with with our spiritual eyes, the, the eyes of our heart. And Lord, we recognize even as we behold You, in the face of your Son, it it, it purifies us. It transforms us from one degree of glory to another. And Lord, we pray today that we could see him. We pray that by your Spirit, through our gospel and word-centered songs, through our prayers and by Scripture reading and, and by the preaching of the Word, that we might see you and your glory and your love for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Spirit. And we pray that this would be great and deep, edifying encouragement to your people today. And I pray that it would also be a means towards salvation for those who might be viewing on Facebook Live today, but have never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. And it's his name we pray today. Amen. You know, last week we got to celebrate Easter together. And one of the great miracles of Easter is that when Christ rose from the dead, the thick curtain in the temple was torn in two. And what that symbolized, among other things, besides the torn flesh of Christ, Hebrews tells us also that Christ has made, given us access, has made the way into the holy place, having gone there for us as our high priest. And so while Those who are outside of Christ have every right to fear God and should rightly fear God. Ours is a reverence and a holy fear that comes from belief, 
So as we sing this next song, now why this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us. Let's remember that the access that Christ has purchased for us is ours and is a part of our owning and possessing eternal life even now. Let's sing. This fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief, His spotless Son for us. And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin? Now canceled at the cross. All my trust is in your blood, Jesus, you've rescued us through your great love. Atonement you have made, and by your death have fully paid the debts your people owe. No wrath remains for us to face, we're sheltered by your saving grace and sprinkled with your blood. All my trust is in your blood, Jesus. You've rescued us through your great love. How sweet the sound, how sweet the sound of precious blood don't fear your banishment from God 
Since Jesus sets you free Jesus All my trust Is in your blood Jesus Rescued us Through your great love How sweet the sound of saving grace How sweet the sound of saving grace Christ died for me. Oh, how sweet the sound of saving grace. How sweet the sound of saving grace. Christ died for me. the sound of saving grace, Christ died for me. How sweet the sound of saving grace, how sweet the sound of saving grace, Christ died for me. blessing this morning. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you. The Lord bless you 
anxious to hear the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family
Indeed, amen. We'll turn your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I want to thank Barry, Heather, our band, the Unseen Band, Ashley, Charles, Mark, and Jeff, Jonathan and Stephen who are working the sound, the slides. There's a lot of people doing work behind the scenes. We're grateful for that. This is a special weekend for me. Yesterday was the 10th anniversary of when I came to Fisherville to preach in view of a call. I began officially on May the 17th, but I preached in view of a call on April the 18th, 2010, in the old building, the sanctuary over here, and it was packed. There were people there that I haven't seen since. That's probably not a good thing. But by God's grace and blessing to us today, it's packed in here today. Uh, so some of our members, unnamed members, I don't know who they were, they've, they've come in here and they've posted pictures of our members. And it looks like there's been some social distancing even with the pictures but I want to say thank you for that. I'm able to look at you. I was able to pray over the pictures during, before the service. And I'm able to look at you in your eyes even as I preach today. So what a blessing on my 10th anniversary of having preached here for the first time. What a great church we have here at Fisherville. I'm grateful for you all. Well, let's pray. We're going to be looking at the first five verses of 2 Samuel 11 today, a very critical text, I think, for us all. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that we indeed can sing amen because of who you are and because of what you have done and accomplished for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, by his incarnation, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to your right hand where he rules and reigns as the Davidic king by the very spirit of Christ. We thank you for the gift of worship. We thank you for technology. We thank you that even as we are quarantined, the word of God is not quarantined. Paul said when he was in prison, the word of God is not chained, and your word cannot be quarantined. It is being preached all over the world today through technology, much of the technology even created by people who do not know you in a saving way, and yet here we have this common grace means of preaching the gospel all over the world, and we thank you for all the preachers who are preaching your word today. And we pray that word would go forth in power by the Spirit of Christ. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last year, during the 35-day government shutdown, in January of 2019, to be specific, various articles were written noting how internet pornography increased significantly during that time of the shutdown. Evidently, Many government workers were at home, had discretionary time 
on their hands. They were isolated. They had lost their mission, their purpose. And evidently, that was behind the rise of internet pornography. Well, similarly and unsurprisingly, articles have been written over the previous weeks during our worldwide quarantine, noting the rise of internet pornography use. On one particular porn site, according to these articles, on an average day, even before the crisis, 120 million people visit this particular subscription website. But during the quarantine, the use has increased 5.7% off of 120 million daily users. Now that's a rate that's higher than the spread of the coronavirus itself. And make no mistake, it's more deadly. In fact, there are secular organizations that are noting how deadly pornography use is. For instance, one article published by the American Association of the Advancement of Science notes that a man who uses pornography while married, you will see double the increase in divorce. And if a woman views pornography while married, it triples the potential for divorce in marriage. Recovery Village, another secular organization, notes that 56% of all divorces involve at least one spouse who views pornography. And when you consider the statistics on porno, uh, pornography use, it's staggering, if not scandalous. Data from the National Coalition for the Protection of Children and Families notes that in the United States alone, there are 40 million regular visits to porn sites every day. 35% of all internet downloads are pornographic. Porn use increases marital infidelity by 300%. Wellbrook.com says, now this is staggering to me, every second of every day in the world, there are 30,000 users watching pornography on the internet. Every second of every day in the world, 30,000 users. And in addition to that, on average, $3,100 are spent on internet pornography every second of every day worldwide. Techaddiction.ca says that the most popular day for viewing pornography is Sunday. Now, why would that be? Well, I would venture to say that most people are not engaged with other people on Sunday. Most people don't go to church. The, the statistics for regular church attendance are falling worldwide. 
And so most people are unengaged. They have discretionary time on their hands. They're isolated. They, they, they're not on mission. They, they, they don't have their purpose before them. And, and as a result, Sundays are the day in which most people watch pornography. Interestingly, the least popular day of the year for watching pornography is Thanksgiving. Now, why would that be? Well, that's a day in which people are engaged with each other. They're engaged with their families. They're engaged with their friends and their loved ones. The implication is this. Isolation, discretionary time, and a loss of purpose and mission equals an opportunity for the evil one, the enemy. Now, the question is, why would I discuss pornography in a text that's clearly about the spiritual and the physical act of adultery? Well, certainly, physical adultery is a blight in Christ's church, and it is a real issue. But right now, I would submit to you that the most sinister and pressing moral and spiritual emergency in Jesus' church today is internet pornography use. And I might add, a porn user is an adulterer. We know that from Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. A porn user is an adulterer. And the physical act of adultery is what a porn user would do if given the right opportunity and promised the same secrecy as if he, when he, what he has in his in his private quarters. You see, secrecy is the key word there for the porn user. Privacy. In fact, it's the language that's used today when they speak about the AAA engine that drives internet pornography in that industry. What is that AAA engine? Well, first of all, accessibility. It's very accessible. Secondly, affordability. And then third, anonymity. You catch that. Anonymity. That is a key word there driving the porn industry. But the secrecy, the anonymity of porn or any other sexual immoral act is an illusion. Hebrews 4 verse 13, no creature is hidden from his, that is from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed are laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And though there was no internet pornography in David's day, we know up to this point in the narrative, David was a polygamist. We also know that David has added concubines to his home. Women that he would have brought into the home who were not officially married to him, but he used in wicked ways. In other words, sexual sin is dynamic. It never remains static. Like any other sin, it's like leaven that eventually leavens the whole bunch. And we're going to see that today with a man who God chose to write 73 psalms. A man that God ordained to be the patriarch of a covenant that would find its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Indeed, the very man who wrote these words from Psalm 19, verse 13, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. That is, sins that you commit, presuming upon the grace and the mercy of God. Let them not have dominion over me. If a man like that can fall into the kind of sexual immoral sins that we see in our text today and other sins that follow, no one is immune. Now, as we approach chapter 11, we've seen David in his Camelot years, if you will. He has defeated God's enemies. He's extended the borders of Israel to the point of what God had promised Abraham. And so David here is reigning as the Son of God. He's declared the Son of God, we know, from that covenant in 2 Samuel 7. He's reigning as the Son of God. He's taking dominion. He's ruling. He's being fruitful as the Son of God in a recapitulation of the Garden of Eden. And as the Son of God, he, he has given steadfast love. He's given hesed love to the lame Israelite Mephibosheth. And he has offered this steadfast love to the Ammonite pagan Hanan in chapter 10. And that is what makes what happens in chapter 11 remind many of the original fall in Genesis 3. Because the rest of this book, 2 Samuel, is nothing but a narrative of horror and pain. And like a porn user, like a porn user, it all began when David saw. Look at me in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, David's forces under his military commander, Joab, had already put down the Ammonite threat in chapter 10. We saw that, what, three weeks ago. But David could not leave the Ammonites unchecked. It's like our enemy today is defeated, but he still allowed, it, he is still allowed to, to exercise sway, if you will. And so he sends Joab out again in verse 1. And so it was not unusual for David to stay back at his castle. There's no real evidence here that he's necessarily in sin by staying in his castle. He had done that before. This was siege warfare, and a king had other responsibilities besides fighting battles. That's all true enough. But there's always a reason, always a reason for the Bible's offhand statements. And here it says, in the spring of the year. Now, this was when the battles took place because the, the winter rains are now gone and the spring of the year, when the, the time when the kings go out to battle. So we're being reminded here, that's what a king does primarily. He goes out to battle. David sent Joab. And so in this case, 
we are being directed to David's neglect of duty. It seems to be a trigger for his sin. The inference here is that he is at this point, he's probably 50 years old, most scholars believe that. He'll die at 70, he's got a couple of decades left. But at this point, he, he, he seems to be coasting. He's in neutral. He, he's not redeeming his time. He's not stewarding his time. Instead of engaging with God, engaging with his family, and in his responsibilities as king, he's gaming late into the night. He's binge-watching the, the 1000 BC version of Netflix. He's spending more time on Facebook than he is engaged with the Word of God, with the people of God, his family, and his responsibilities, and his ministry. Of course, I'm being facetious here, but... Throughout the book of Samuel so far, we have seen that the Lord was with David. But what's interesting about this chapter, the Lord's name is not mentioned but one time. And that is the last phrase of this chapter. But the thing, verse 27, that David had done displeased the Lord. That's the only time the Lord's name is mentioned in this entire chapter. Now, the last time we saw a chapter like this, it was in 1 Samuel 27, where David, there's no prayers, there's no psalms written, and David flees to the land of the Philistines because he believed at that point in unbelief that Saul was going to kill him. In fact, in chapter 12, when Nathan does come to David, we'll see that in a couple of weeks, we see in verse 9, he says, "'Why have you despised the word of the Lord?' to do what is evil in his sight. And so what David is doing in this chapter, he's despising the word of the Lord, which is to despise the Lord himself. He's lost the awe. The awe that we see in those 73 Psalms that David writes. And so his heart, which is hardwired for awe, like all of our hearts are hardwired for awe, they're constituted for awe, because he has all source amnesia, he is subject at this point to an awe replacement. Now, what does that drive home for us? Omission generally precedes commission. Now, let me explain that. Omission is the things that we should be doing by way of our duty and disciplines and responsibilities. Omission generally precedes commission. Commission being the acts that we commit that are wrong and sinful. Charles Spurgeon, I love this quote from Spurgeon. Some temptations come to the industrious, that is to those who are busy in their responsibilities. Some temptations come to the industrious, but all temptations attack the idle. All temptations attack the idol. And so a central way to guard against the temptation to besetting sin 
is to stay engaged, to stay busy in our responsibilities, which God has called us. Spiritual disciplines. Our, our family. Our work responsibility. Our church family. Our neighbors. These are the ways or means by which we can avoid much temptation. In other words, if David had attended to his duties in the springtime when kings go to war, David stayed back. If David had attended to his duties rather than his straying desires, we would not be reading 2 Samuel 11. In fact, the rest of the book would, would play out different. If David had prayed as much in the castle as he did in the caves, we would not be reading about chapter 11. What's ironic here is that he looks safer in Jerusalem than he does on the battlefield. If you were to ask me uh, in that day, where, which place would the king be safer? Would it be safer for him to remain in Jerusalem where there is no battle, in the castle, safe and sound, or would it be more dangerous? Would it be more likely we would lose the king if he was on the battlefield? I would tell you a hundred times out of a hundred, the castle is where he needs to be. That's where we need to protect our king. But the most dangerous thing for us all is not outside of us. The most dangerous thing is inside of us. Let's keep that in mind as we concern ourselves with the economy and the health crisis going on in our world. Notice with me in verse 2. It happened late one afternoon. The writer seems to be saying, you never know when this is just going to occur. It just happened. Late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch, he appeared to maybe be taking a nap, relaxing, and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw. There it is. He saw. Do not underestimate the power of the eye. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. He saw. Now, some things we see can have a massive benefit to us. 2 Corinthians 3 talks about beholding God. And as we behold our God, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. But what we behold with our eyes, we become. And what he saw was dangerous, given the object, given the danger of this kind of seeing. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 23, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. you get that? If your eye fixates on that which is lawless and ungodly and evil and wicked, your whole body, that is your whole person, will be full of darkness. 
Now, at this point, you can't help the first glance sometimes. But the second glance can kill you. David should have fled temptation. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. He should have, Romans 13, 14, made no provision for the flesh. Of course, this applies to any sin that one may be susceptible to. Hebrews 12 talks about besetting sins. So if you're given to pride, and many of us are given to pride, how do you flee temptation? How do you starve that, that temptation to pride? Well, you don't boast. You don't point out your successes. And that needs to be heard today, especially with people on the social media. You don't retweet or repeat others' praises of you. You recognize that every success in your life, every benefit, every gift is a gift from God. Or maybe you're a person prone to slander or gossip or a critical spirit or anxiety. What do you do? You Rather than just being subsumed by it and saying, that's the way I am, you apply the Scriptures to your thinking. You apply the Scriptures to your speech so as to guard yourselves from sin. All of us need to recognize, even believers, Christians who have the Holy Spirit, that not only do we still have a sin nature to, to contend with, but that we have a very real enemy who exploits, who seeks to exploit our sin nature. Now think about this. David arises from his couch, the implication he's been taking a nap. He didn't plan to become an adulterer that day. He didn't plan to become a conspirator or a murderer, as we will see, or a hypocrite. Sin doesn't work that way. It doesn't show its cards up front. It doesn't show its hand all at once. It's much more deceitful. It's much more devious and subtle than that. But once in sin's grip, a person is taken to places that he or she never conceived or planned and will remain in that place much longer than they ever thought. Keep in mind, when the Lord has prohibited things from us, and he has, when he has prohibited things from us, it's for our good. The Lord is not a killjoy. He's actually protecting us from the things that do kill our joy. And hence, we're not to look at them, we are to turn away. And that's why one of the real issues, I think, in Jesus' church today is that many professing Christians are watching things on television and on the internet that Christians just a generation ago and for all of church history, 2,000 years of church history, would have found completely inconceivable, unfathomable. And it's normalizing. It's normalizing perversion. And it is desensitizing us to evil. That's what it does. Remember, 
David saw. David saw. It's reminiscent of 2 Peter 2, verse 8, when the apostle says of Lot, who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, but was a believer. Lot's righteous soul was tormented by the things he saw and the things he heard in Sodom. Last week, I mentioned a, a show that is getting so much publicity on, on Netflix. And, and I mentioned it to Heather, and I said, man, I, I, there, there are people that I respect, Christians I respect, who are you know, publishing or publicizing this show. And evidently, it's got this remarkable storyline. But before we would watch the show, I went to the reviews. And here's the first review I saw about this show. Nudity. Sexual content, not for kids or adults who choose to avoid nudity and sexually explicit themes. That enraged me. It grieved me when I saw that. It's utterly insane. Besides, perverse that professing Christians are watching this filth. David saw. This all began by David seeing. Jesus, Job understood that. Job, in, even in the midst of his trials, even in the midst of a quarantine that has come on him because of his own afflictions, says this in Job 31, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I may be in quarantine. I may be isolated. But I have made a covenant with my eyes. There's no sabbatical from this covenant. There's no vacation. There's no weekend from this covenant. There's too much at stake. But not David. Not David. And now having allowed his eyes to fill up his imagination, David takes an unconscionable second step. David saw, now we're going to see David sent. Notice in verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Now, according to Pauline wisdom, David would not have had been privy to Pauline wisdom, but David did have the Holy Spirit. And so... He would have had this wisdom if not in a text. According to Pauline wisdom, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. David would have known, not necessarily by chapter and verse, because Paul had not come on the scene yet, but he would have known instinctively that no temptation has overtaken you. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. That is not common to man. God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Of course, it's one thing to be tempted. It's another thing to willingly, willfully place yourself in the way of temptation. And news comes back to him after he sends out to find out, inquire about the woman. News that should have sobered him. News that should have been a gracious warning to him. Notice the second part of verse 3. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David learns three things about this woman that was bathing. The woman was Bathsheba. The second thing he learns is she is the daughter of Eliam, who was one of David's elite warriors. We know that from chapter 23, verse 34. Which means, we'll learn this in time, she was the granddaughter of Ahithophel, who was one of his counselors. His venerated counselors, chapter 16, verse 23, because Ahithophel was Eliam's dad. So this was a very loyal family that Bathsheba was a part of. Most importantly, this is the third thing he learns about Bathsheba. She was married. She was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. We're going to spend more time on Uriah next week, but... Suffice to say, he was another one of David's elite warriors. And I believe a believer in the Lord, a Yahweh. He was from a Canaanite background, a Hittite. But we're going to see this man was a believer. Now this feedback, this news should have been like a cold glass of water being splashed on David's face. It was such a merciful warning for him. But David saw. Remember, David saw. His imagination is now filled up. And when he saw, he didn't take it to the Lord. Then note what he did. David saw. David sent. The third thing we see here in verses 4 and 5. David seized the anatomy of a fall. Look with me in verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. He took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. David has crossed a line that can never, ever be uncrossed. And we should all be terrified, shaking in our boots of how rapid this moral descent has taken place. It happened like that. His world, his legacy, his life, his family is forever and forever changed. 
And it began with him seeing. John Owen, in such a powerful line from his book, Sin and Temptation, says this, Sin always aims at the utmost. Now what does it mean by that? I'm just going to explain this, line, this, this quote because it's, it's written in a different time. Sin aims at the utmost. It's not satisfied where it presently is, in other words. Every time it raises up to tempt us or entice us, might it have its own course? If it had its own way, in other words, it would go to the utmost sin in that kind. That's, that's sobering. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery. You get that? If sin had its way, if sin had its own course, every unclean thought or glance would end up in adultery. If it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. So you covet something that someone else has and you, you desire to oppress that person. Maybe you, you cut them down, you criticize them, or you even take it from them. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Sin is never satisfied. If it could have its own way, it would lead to the utmost in that particular area. In other words, don't flirt with presumptuous sin. But David saw, David sent, and David seized. Ironically, the king who had dominion was mastered by his sinful desires. And there's so many echoes here of the original fall. So, for instance, in Genesis 3, listen to these words, verse 6. So when the woman saw, you see that? When the woman saw that the tree was good. Again, if your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. When the woman saw that the forbidden tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, it was beautiful, you see. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took, she seized, she took of its fruit and ate. So here David saw a woman. She was good and he desired her and he took her. In 2 Samuel 1 verse 19, David had lamented the physical death of Saul and Jonathan. And you remember what he said? How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. And this fall is far much more egregious than physical death. But the good thing is he's still king. And so he's still in control of things, right? Not so fast. Notice in the second part of verse 4. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David. This time, 
She's the one sending. I am pregnant. Now, what's with this language of purifying herself? Well, this explains the bath in verse 2. All right? Levitical laws defined various states in life as unclean. All right? So this was part of a a kind of a life-encompassing symbolic system under the Old Covenant where Israel was taught their God is holy and was taught as well what it meant for them to be holy. And one of these states that was considered unclean ritually was a woman's menstrual cycle. And so Bathsheba, we're learning now, was bathing, and that bathing was a ritual cleansing following her menstrual cycle. In other words, Bathsheba wasn't seducing David. She was engaging in a a law given in the Old Covenant. But why does the writer say this here rather than verse 2? Why didn't the writer just tell us that's what she was doing in verse 2? Because he's making a point. Bathsheba is clearly not pregnant when she tells David she's conceived. She's clearly not pregnant. And what's not so obvious is what Bathsheba's feelings were in all of this. The text doesn't tell us, and I think that's telling. Apparently, the intention of the writer was to place ultimate blame on David, not on Bathsheba. I don't think that she was in any way seducing him. I think she would have been oblivious that he was up there It was in the springtime when kings go to war. She would have assumed her king was doing his business on the battlefield. She wasn't seducing him. And I think that that's inferred in that the Bathsheba's only recorded words in this chapter are these words here. Two words in Hebrew, three words in English. I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. But these words drive home that the enemy never shows his cards in temptation. He only shows us the the veneer of beauty, the ecstasy, the thrill. The enemy uses false happiness as bait in temptation. He never reveals the chains to follow. Now, Every baby conceived is a gift from God. Every baby. And that's why abortion is wicked. And let me just say this. I've heard people say, well, that's only one issue. You're going to be a one-issue voter. What if the issue is murder? I believe it would be wrong to vote for any politician, any politician, who would argue For abortion rights. Abortion is wicked. It is no different than what Hitler did in the early 20th century. And so, although an adulterous pregnancy is a consequence of sin, that baby is a blessing in itself because that life is from God. 
Remember, God took the most evil, heinous evil in the history of the world. That is the, the crucifixion of the Son of God. And he brought about the greatest good from the greatest evil. And so he can take lesser evils like adulterous affairs and bring about beauty and, and blessing. My glasses are driving me crazy. So a baby is never a curse, a blessing. A blessing. That's what a baby is. Having said that, most every issue that David would have the last dec two decades of his life were related to what 21st century free love advocates would call one small fling. One small fling. But the most central and important effect of this sin, okay, was not pregnancy out of wedlock. It's the offense to the essential and holy nature of God. And that's why David would later, and it's going to be months and months before this happens, he'll have to be confronted by, by a prophet, Nathan, Psalm 51. But later, in his repentance, here's what he will pray. Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Fundamentally, the sin was against God. The offense was against God. But given David's sin and his evil, to use his language in Psalm 51, the proper penalty for adultery under the Mosaic Covenant was capital punishment. So why wasn't David put to death? Well, Deuteronomy 19.15 tells us that two or three witnesses were required by law. David had no witnesses. But make no mistake, David did not get away with his sin. The rest of 2 Samuel will show us that. There are always consequences for our sin. Some we don't even recognize. But there are always consequences for our sin. But in God's economy, there's also provision for forgiveness. Even the forgiveness of adultery. And what would end up being murder and conspiracy. David would make this clear when he eventually repented. He called out to God for mercy, Psalm 51 verse 1. He confessed his sins to the Lord, Psalm 51, verse 3. And then in verse 7 of Psalm 51, remarkably, here's what he says. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And what does that mean? Well, the hyssop branch formed the brush used by the priest to sprinkle the blood of the substitute, the sacrificed animal, for the cleansing of sinners. And so in a, in a foreshadowing way, in a, in a typological way, David was appealing to the once-for-all sacrifice, to the blood of the, of the one, the lamb who would come, who would take away the sins of the world. 
Even the sins of adultery and murder for those who would trust in him. And it's not just the sins of adultery, though, that need cleansing. All sins. And it's available. It's available in the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross being punished for adultery and murder and for every other possible sin for those who trust in Him. And if we've been cleansed from our sins, then we should pray with David, as Psalm 51 tells us, verse 10, create in me a clean heart. That's where a believer is. He's been cleansed from his sin. He's been forgiven. But you don't just rest in forgiveness. One of the evidences you've been saved, you long to be cleaned practically. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. A right spirit, not a spirit that goes rogue. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. There is hope for every sinner. There's hope for every adulterer. There's, er, there's hope for every person who engages in pornography. And that hope is found in the one in whom David was looking to by way of type, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's hope for every person today who's never trusted in Jesus. No matter what your past is, no matter what your present is, if you will trust in him. If you will confess your sins and, and recognize that Jesus has died on the cross for sins, He's paid our penalty in full. He has satisfied God's wrath on our sin, and He is raised from the grave so that you might have the forgiveness of sins. The Bible says you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. It's a sobering text, Lord, but it's an important text, especially in this time in our culture. We pray that you would do your work by this word today. And Father, we ask these things in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh!
riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. I keep That's our prayer today. Uh, in contrast to what David saw, we want Christ and our Heavenly Father by the Spirit to be our vision and the ruler of all things in our lives. And so let's go from this time today sober-minded as to the words we've heard, as to the example of a brother, David, who, who fell so horrifically, and yet so found the richness of God's grace, even amidst the consequences of his own sin. So let's go from this time um, sober-minded, yet joyful that Christ died and suffered, lived a perfect life, and his righteousness is fully imputed to us so that no matter what we've done, God looks upon us and we profess faith in Christ, looks upon us no longer as enemies and outside of him and in the first Adam, but in the last Adam. Not as enemies, but as sons and daughters of God. So let's close with a word of prayer and thank him for his grace and for his mercy. And may this week he be our vision. He be what we see and what we seek. Father, we come to you today, and it is only by your Spirit that you can truly be our vision. Help us to hear the sobering words um, that Brian preached this morning from your word, that you would be what we see, uh, seek to fill up our sight, and the eyes of our hearts be enlightened by what is true and what is right and good, and that we not ebb and flow and our love for you, and our desire for obedience, but rather it would be a joyful and happy obedience to do your will. Father, I pray that uh, the words that we've heard this morning from your word, the words that we've sung, would fill us today, would feed us today, 
and would draw us closer to yourself. Lord, we love you, and apart from you, we can do nothing. And so let's go from this time loving you more and loving one another more. We can do these things by the power of your Spirit because of what Christ not merely made possible, but what he accomplished for us on the cross. And we pray all these things through him and by your Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.